Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, October 14th, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me again today. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. This week, Andrew PW released its annual list of the world's biggest publishers. And for all the changes the pandemic has wrought in so many other areas, COVID-19 does not appear to have changed the book world much at all. Yeah, the turmoil caused by the global pandemic was not enough to unseat the Relics Group as the world's largest book publisher in 2021. Uh, though Relic sales actually fell slightly in 2021, about 3% over 2020, uh, the STM and legal publisher still held a healthy lead over the second place entry, uh, Thomson Reuters, on the Publishers Weekly Annual Global Ranking, which is out this week, a preview of which you can see on the PW website. And of course, if you're in Frankfurt, it will be featured as part of our annual CEO talk. Uh, it's put together, of course, with uh, our, our partner, our consultant, Rudiger Rieschenbart. And you know, in fact, the top six publishers in 2020 all held their positions in 2021, which is not unusual. Uh, that's the way it's been for, I think, for a few years now. And there was some shifting among the top 10 players, uh, but no company dropped out of that group. The top 10 remains pretty stable. Uh, those 10 largest publishers generated about $35 billion in 2021 and accounted for 53% of sales for all the top 50 companies included uh, on this year's ranking. Uh, Penguin Random House parent Bertelsmann remained in third place. I think it's worth noting uh, this despite a small revenue decline in the year due to a drop in sales in its education group, which offset what, what was a strong year in trade sales. And of course, we could soon have news of another major shift in the list as we expect any day now to hear whether Bertelsmann and its Penguin Random House subsidiary are going to be allowed by U.S. antitrust regulators in the U.S. to buy Simon & Schuster. Which, if you're curious, Simon Schuster clocked in at number 23 on the global ranking. In a bit of news, HarperCollins moved up to seventh place from number 10 in 2020. That's a pretty significant jump. HarperCollins, whose sales are from the fiscal year that ended June 30th, 2021, benefited not only from an overall increase in consumer book sales in the U.S., but also from acquisitions that added about $55 million to its bottom line in 2021, $32 million of which came from the company's 2020 purchase of three children's books groups in Europe that had been owned by Egmont and another $23 million that came from the purchase of the Houghton Mifflin Harcourt Trade Division, which was completed in May of 2021. You can check out the full report and access the full list via the PW site. I'm not going to cover all of the top 50 here. I'll just add that for all the talk of a trade sales book uh, boom during the pandemic, overall, the level of organic growth is pretty modest, which is what you'd expect of a mature industry like the publishing business. Uh, and while the total sales of the publishers in PW's annual ranking has grown consistently over the years, that's actually been fueled by acquisitions, both of major competitors and of smaller companies. And that's a trend I expect we'll see continue. On the point of book sales, Andrew, I did notice a PW headline this week that said sales are starting to slip. Of course, we expected that 2022 wouldn't reach the heights hit in 2021. But do you have any more clarity on how this year might finish? 
Hmm. Well, it all appears to be in Colleen Hoover's hands. <laughs> Overall, I think this year continues to be, in my estimation, even more remarkable than 2021, uh, given the economic headwinds publishers are facing and the supply chain issues and all that stuff. Through the first three quarters of 2022, MPD BookScan has print books down about 4.8% from 2021, which remember, as you just noted, 2021 was a year in which sales were up about 9% pretty strong year. Uh, and I think we could actually see a pretty strong holiday finish this year. So yeah, sales are down as expected, but for my money, the industry is still having a heck of a year and is beating where I thought the industry would be at this point in the year. And, and here may be the best news of all, and that's that adult fiction has been the strongest category all year. And that was particularly true in the third quarter when sales jumped 38.5% over a strong third quarter in 2021. Uh, leading to an overall 9.2 sales increase through the first nine months of the year for fiction. Uh, for years on this podcast, we talked about this decline in fiction, which was a very worrying trend to publishers. But since the pandemic, people apparently have rediscovered their love of story. Fiction sales have been positive and rising for three years now, uh, which is, of course, great news. And yeah, thank you, Colleen Hoover. <laughs> Indeed, the success of Colleen Hoover is one of the year's top stories, Andrew. Exactly what do her sales numbers add to the overall industry picture? Yeah, really a remarkable story. All four Colleen Hoover books that have sold more than one million copies this year were novels, you know, in the fiction category. And to no one's surprise, the Book Talk star is uh, the best-selling author so far this year by a mile with sales of, let me see, It Ends With Us is nearing two million copies sold. Uh, Verity and Ugly Love have also posted sales of more than a million each. And then there is Hoover's Reminders of Him, which has sold just over 922,000 copies. While another book talk favorite, uh, Taylor Jenkins Reid, uh, the book The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, has sold a little over 995,000 copies. So Colleen Hoover, huge. Book talk in general, even bigger. Uh, there hasn't been a million seller nonfiction yet this year, which I think is interesting. With the top-selling adult nonfiction book in the first nine months of 2022 being Atomic Habits by James Clear, which sold more than 933,000 copies. And that bested the 902,000 copies that American Marxism by Mark Levin sold. But, of course, Levin was also the number one adult nonfiction book at this point last year. So continued strong sales for that title. A federal judge in New York is now ready to hear summary judgment motions in the copyright infringement lawsuit brought by four major publishers against the Internet Archive over the scanning and lending of library books. Yeah, it's getting real. You know, we briefly touched on this last week, and as expected, a third and final round of briefs were filed late last week, meaning that each side's motion for summary judgment in the case is now fully briefed. Uh, this, of course, is the publishers, four major publishers' lawsuit against the Internet Archive over its program to scan and lend library books under an untested legal theory known as controlled digital lending. Uh, the briefs come after the parties filed dueling motions for summary judgment back in July. Uh, there was a set of reply briefs on September 2nd. And of course, it's been more than two years now since these four major publishers, uh, Hachette, HarperCollins, uh, Penguin Random House, and Wiley, uh, organized by the Association of American Publishers since they first filed this copyright infringement lawsuit 
alleging that the Internet Archive's program to scan and lend books was basically a massive piracy operation. Now, as for what comes next, I expect we'll soon see a day for oral arguments. Uh, of course, there could be other motions and filings over other issues, but for now, uh, we can say that each side's case has been fleshed out for summary judgment. We're ready for a hearing on the motions, uh, which could actually decide this case before it gets to trial. And I think one of the things that I would mention at this point is that the judge in this case, uh, Judge John Cottle, is a very no-nonsense judge. And he's also a great believer in judicial economy. So I would not be surprised if he urges the parties to, you know, take a cooling off period, maybe enter settlement talks with a magistrate judge before uh, setting a hearing date. Now, I wouldn't even be surprised if he holds a hearing about oral arguments before actually scheduling those oral arguments. At the same time, I think it's clear from the filings that there really isn't much, at least on the publisher side for sure, that would be accomplished through settlement talks. So I'm not holding my breath that that's going to happen, even though I personally would still hold out hope that a settlement could happen because I do think that, you know, speaking personally, that would be best for everyone. Give us your readings on the filings and explain just why you think a settlement would be best. Sure. So, you know, as expected, both sides say the facts and the law are clearly on their side in this case. The publishers say that, you know, the undisputed facts and settled law lead to the conclusion that the Internet Archive scanning and lending of library books is, you know, as I said before, copyright infringement on a massive scale. Uh, attorneys for the Internet Archive insist that their program is carefully designed to respect copyright and that no reasonable jury could conclude that the Internet Archive's controlled scanning and lending of library books actually has harmed the publisher's market. And I guess I could try to give you the broad strokes of the cases I see them now through three filings, you know, translated from the legal, legal language, of course. Basically, I'd say that the publishers allege that the Internet Archive is, you know, one, evading paying ebook license fees by scanning and making their own digital editions of the publisher's work and then loaning them out to patrons worldwide. Uh, this is an exclusive right of the copyright holder, the publishers insist, to license or not to license digital editions of their works. Uh, the publishers also say that there is a robust library ebook market already in place and a robust market for print books. And while I won't go into the case law they cite, because I'm not sure that would mean much for the non-lawyers here, they claim that, broadly speaking, controlled digital lending, as it's set up, is little more than a cynical branding exercise, to quote them, uh, designed to repackage the Internet Archive's industrial scale copyright infringement as some sort of legitimate enterprise. And there can be no viable fair use defense here. The IA is basically republishing ebook editions that they've scanned of the works in question without a license. And there is a market for licensed access to library ebooks out there. That's the case. Uh, furthermore, the publishers insist that the Internet Archive is not a library and shouldn't be considered as such because it is, in fact, a commercial actor that actually charges libraries for their scanning services and their hosting services. Uh, if anyone can call themselves a library and then go ahead and set up a nonprofit group and start scan scanning and lending out copyrighted content, well, the publishers say that would be it, right? The gates of hell would be wide open. And the Internet Archive's counter to all of that? So in their briefs, the Internet Archive lawyers reiterate their arguments that their scanning and lending program really is fair use and that the evidence is going to show that there's actually no harm to the publisher's market here. And I've really been struck by how Internet Archive lawyers have definitely made the case that this is, you know, this whole action is about library lending, right? Less about the scanning, more about the lending. You know, after the Google case, we know that people can scan books legally, the Internet Archive says. 
And the Internet Archive says that they're using the scans of their books in ways that comport with copyright law. And, you know, lending is specifically allowed under copyright law. And that's all the Internet Archive says it is doing. It's just lending books like libraries traditionally do. In essence, the Internet Archive in their briefs is saying, look, we've legally acquired all these print books. We paid for them. We own them. The authors have been paid according to their contracts. So we have the right to lend them and more to the point to innovate on how we lend them. And it's in the public interest for us to do so because libraries have always done this. Now, here's what makes the case really interesting to me after reading all the briefs. And that's, I wonder how the court will see these scans. Will the court see these scans as a market substitute? Now, the publishers say, obviously, these are market substitutes because the activity in question here is reading, reading a book, and the patron is able to read an entire unlicensed edition if they choose. And yeah, on the surface, that is a very compelling point. A patron does have access to the entire text from the Internet Archive scans, and those scans are indisputably an unlicensed copy. Then again, if you're making a fair use, you don't need a license, right? And the Internet Archive insists that its program is fair use. And one of the reasons why is because there's no evidence, they say, that its activities have harmed anyone's sales. And to that, I have to say, I really can't comment at this point because all of the evidence in terms of sales at this point has been filed under seal. So we just aren't going to see those numbers, at least not yet. Now, the Internet Archive says, and they make this point clear in all their briefs, that it really makes no difference to the rights holder whether a patron accesses the actual book from a library shelf that the library has legally acquired and owns and is entitled to lend, or a picture that they've taken, right? A scan of that actual book if the two things are controlled properly, right? If only one of them circulates, it really doesn't make any difference which version the patron accesses, the rights holder's been compensated, everything's been controlled. Furthermore, they insist there is no harm from a lost license fee because the fact that this service exists, you know, the service that you can rent licensed actual real ebook editions from services like Overdrive, the fact that that service exists, well, that's an entirely different market from what controlled digital lending offers, which is, the Internet Archive says, you know, access to the actual a picture, a scan of an actual physical library book in lieu of actually taking out that physical library book. And truth be told, if reading is the goal, you have to say that that scan is a pretty bad reading experience, right? I don't think anyone would choose to read the scan for convenience sake over, you know, getting the overdrive version or getting the actual print book off the shelf. And that's what the IA says this case is really about. They say that the publishers are trying to force libraries into a licensed access market for real ebooks that would drastically limit the traditional role of libraries to lend the books that they own and keep on their shelves. And I don't know how the court's going to see that. And I'll just go back to my personal observation. I mentioned the settlement before, and you know I've said it all along. There really is quite an obvious business solution here that would both respect libraries and pay rights holders, at least something worth experimenting with. And I question, you know, why not find it? Why not at least sit down and work to find it? To me, the idea that we are actually going to go to a summary judgment hearing and then potentially to a trial, they're actually going to litigate digital access to library books in 2022. I just find that to be a really sad state of affairs. So still holding out hope that there can be maybe some agreement that benefits everyone before we get to trial and there's a decision on this, but I'm not optimistic at this point. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer. Thanks for joining me on the program. My pleasure as always. 
Coming up on the next podcast from CCC, R&D plays a central role in promoting economic growth and job creation. Public appreciation of researchers' value, though, has been strained in the COVID pandemic, as well as from the onslaught of online misinformation and disinformation. An antidote to cynicism and suspicions may be humor, suggests Chilani Runwaller, a research communication specialist based in Colombo, Sri Lanka. Runwaller proposes that repackaging information into humorous content creates an informal access point that the public will find more inviting than traditional forms, such as white papers and journal articles. If you are in an environment where it is possible to use humor, I feel like the first thing researchers should do is just look at their work, look at their messaging, look at their data, because sometimes, you know, you don't even have to create humorous content. The the facts and the truth are funny enough to expose, um, especially with things like contradictions in, in policymaking or certain expenditures that the government has made that hasn't been fruitful. There's always irony. There's always humor in the information that we already have. Um, so looking for opportunities to bring those out and to use humor to communicate the message to your public. I think looking for those opportunities is uh, where it can all begin. A new recipe for research, Add Humor, coming on the next CCC podcast. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening to this Velocity of Content podcast from CCC.